you know, with all the things coming on, I went back to a really old quote that uh, Chuck Colson uh, made long time ago regarding the body. And it has to do a little bit with what we're talking about this morning in the sense that I've entitled this the, the, the Discipleship Paradox. Paradox, of course, is the, the idea of having contradictory qualities or ideas stated at the same time. And so the passage we're dealing with in Mark 8 seems to be filled with those things. In fact, we're talking about whoever will save his life will lose it. And so it becomes sort of a paradox is the way I save my life is I lose my life. There's other statements in here. Uh, whoever loses my, their life for my sake in the gospel will save it. And it goes on in Mark 8, 36. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? which for many people would be a paradox. Uh, Chuck Colson makes the statement, Respecting, uh, respect for differing views provides some defense against the natural desire to probe incessantly the mystery of the gospel. There are those who would consider it to be the ultimate intellectual achievement to unravel the hidden counsels of God. And I would amen that saying, good luck if you think you can figure God out. But, the pursuit of doctrine for the sake of doctrine can be idolatrous. The gospel will not be demystified. God will not be mocked by the pretensions of those who believe they might fully and certainly know his mind. What was after all, not, was that not after all the sin of the garden? And so when we come to the scriptures, I clearly have a sense of humbly presenting to you the truths that we are wandering through with an invitation for you to continue to study and to search them so that it becomes a personal journey with the Spirit of God to reshape and change your heart, not just listen to me drone on on Sundays. The text that we're in is Mark 8, starting at verse 34. If you want to follow along, it'll also be up on the screen. And it says this, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The, the heartbeat of this particular text is interesting. He goes on and says this, and calling the crowd, uh, it, well, let me, let me back up and do this, sorry about that. I want us to think about the, the whole paradox of this passage because he talks about some things that ought to sort of strain your heart a little bit because we have nicely packaged in our theology distinctions between salvation and sanctification. We seem to have those things all thought out and there's some great theological thought about it. As we've touched into this text, I would suggest to you that Jesus doesn't start making big compartmentalized distinctions. He talks about following him, and he doesn't use all the terms, but it is sometimes hard for us to figure out what it is that God wants. I uh, ran across a fun little story about an atheist who was walking through the backwoods of some place, admiring all that what he would call the accidents, the evolutionary accidents uh, of creation, or as it were. What majestic trees, what powerful rivers, what amazing animals and beautiful animal life. And suddenly behind him, he heard this massive crashing through the woods, and he turned around to see a big grizzly coming after him. So he turned around and started hightailing it and panicking and uh, stumbling around. The bear kept gaining ground on him, and he fell and kind of scrambled on his hands and knees to turn around to see the bear right over top of him, getting ready to pounce on him. And at that very moment, he uh, cried out, says, God, help me. 
And then everything froze. The bear froze, the water, the river froze. Everything just stopped moving, no wind, nothing. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this, there was a voice that came from the heavens, and it said this, you deny my existence for all these years, you teach others that I don't exist, and even credit creation to be a cosmic accident. Do you really expect me to do anything to help you out of this predicament? Uh, do I count you a believer? And the atheist looked directly into the light and said, well, I would be like a hypocrite to become a Christian after all these years of denying you, but perhaps you could make the bear a Christian. And I'm sure you've heard this. He says, well, very well. And the voice disappeared, the light went out, and everything went to normal. And all the sounds and everything kicked back in. The bear suddenly paused from there, got down on all four knees, put its paws together and said, Lord, thank you for this meal that I'm about to accept. <laughs> the, the problem in our life is that the paradox that you and I live with is it's very easy to want God to change everything around us except me. And the call to discipleship is where God's calling us as individuals to submit to Christ in a way that he changes me. He changes my heart and he changes my beliefs and values. He changes the way I think about life. But that's excruciatingly painful because at times, even as Christians, we think we're okay. I've got enough figured out about the Christian life and I've got my routines and rituals that I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. And often Jesus taps us on the shoulders and goes, well, you might be, but I'm not. Because there's a lot more that I want to do in your life, but you're unwilling to listen to my voice, and you don't want to do the things that I ask. And the bottom line is, is, and I'm sure Jesus would go on, is because what it really comes down to is, you're really afraid to actually trust me, because you think I'm going to mess up your life. You know, as I read through this text, I want us to note some things about the process. I have... Uh, propose to you that Jesus makes four clear statements in here, followed by four reasons why he makes those statements. In fact, the, the section that we want to deal with is the second part of these, this four-part phrase where he's talking about let the, him deny himself, coupled with the reason that follows further on in the text in verse 36, for what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? Now clearly Jesus doesn't compartmentalize too many things. There, on the one hand we'd say, well listen, if I don't follow Jesus right, I could be in for a really rough chaotic life where I run into lots of problems because we assume following Jesus, he's gonna make life nice and clean and neat and protect me from bad stuff. On the other hand, Jesus clearly gives the, the sense that there are some eternal ramifications to this idea of choosing to follow him. It isn't just about living a better life, it's where is my eternal life, and what does that look like? Typically, the way we look at the concept of denying something uh, goes back, for instance, in Matthew 26, where he talks to Peter. If you remember the whole discussion right before his betrayal, uh, Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So when we talk about this idea of denying something, we have this sense of we're, just, we're distancing ourselves from a person or a truth that we don't believe that, we don't accept that, and we won't embrace it. 
you know, if we did a dictionary survey of, of this particular term, you get things like this, to declare something as not being true. To deny something is to refuse to admit or acknowledge something. To give a negative answer to someone. And Peter would fit into that category after being with Jesus so much times he was denying being associated with Jesus. And he did it fervently uh, three different times and he clearly denied Jesus. It's to refuse to grant permission. It's to restrain from gratification of desires. There's a lot of different things. Morally, it's to renounce behavior or activity. And then finally, the responsibility is to reject taking on a role or responsibility. So the concept of being a disciple is, fits into this larger context is, is that we need to understand what Jesus has already said. Jesus is the Christ. He's already made that in the previous text uh, in terms of his discussion with the disciples. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, in verses 27 through 30. Jesus already announced that he will, be, he will suffer many things and be rejected and killed by the Pharisees and the scribes. And then he announced that he will, even being killed, that he will be raised. So Jesus introduces what we would call the future concept of the gospel because the cross hasn't happened yet. And so he's talking to the, these Jews and his own disciples, but he uses and introduces the gospel as we would know it in terms of after his death and burial and resurrection. So that's part of the discussion in which Jesus is talking about. And so he is what I would call clarifying the full nature of the gospel. Uh, he came preaching, repent, for believe the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand, and it was about restoring Israel and the kingdom that God promised to David back as the centerpiece of his activity in this life. We know that's not going to work out that way, but this, this is the language that Jesus is using, and we need to recognize that he clearly introduces the gospel as we would know it. But in this concept of being disciple, he said some things. Let me review the first one. If anyone would desire to come after me, and then that's associated with whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the gospel or for, and for me will lose it. And so the, the idea it comes back to this whole sense of Jesus is the centerpiece. Whether he's talking in this text, when we think about after his death and resurrection, Jesus is clearly the centerpiece of the good news. And he introduces this concept of his death clearly and specifically. What does that mean for them? Well, the responsibility includes, first, if you want to come after me, then you need to deny yourself. Now, let me explore that a little bit with you because the reason he gives for it, for what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? He doesn't say forfeit a good life. He says forfeits his soul. So there's clearly a bigger picture here than just how well does this life go. Now, the obvious problem, as I mentioned, is that the cross hasn't actually come for Jesus, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus constructs this tangible language for these people that portrays what's going to happen and what we should embrace. And let me explain it this way. Even as Christians, I believe that this text is relevant to us because I think we can find similar language in the, in the Gospels and in the Epistles that would mirror the things that Jesus is talking about here. Let, let me suggest to you Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, 
Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable spiritual worship. It's not extraordinary, it's not radical, it's this is what God would call you to. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is. And I think Paul puts in his language the same thing that Jesus is saying here, is that if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, then here's what you need to do, and he mentions it this way because it's before the cross, Paul is saying, listen, after the cross, we're gonna use different language, but in essence, it means the same thing. Now, there's other places, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says in that particular passage, the love of Christ compels or controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live will no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on, and rose on their behalf. And so if you begin to think this through, let me show you the, the pieces and then make a suggestion. I don't want to get lost here, but it's the bigger picture that he's talking about. The structure of Mark 8 is this. Come after me, and he compares that. The reason that's given is you, those who lose their life for me in the gospel will save it. Deny yourself, and that parallels the, the, the reason he gives that what does it do if you gain the whole world, and we'll touch on that again in a minute, uh, or you lose your soul. So it's not just, again, it's not just I have a successful life here, but it has eternal ramifications of what happens to our eternal soul. Next week we'll deal with take up your cross, and then he adds this whole question, what does a soul really cost? And we'll discover really quickly is that we have no resources at all to pay the price to get our entrance into heaven on our own efforts. It has to be the cross of Christ, and then follow me is, if you're ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you, and we'll think about the implications there. But let me, and this is the tricky part of the morning, because if you have some theological training, there's some areas here that you may push back on, depending on your background and what your training is, but I will suggest to you these four statements of Jesus follows what we would see as the message of the gospel. Come after me is where Christ is trying to rescue the regenerative work of the Spirit of God in a person's life. Uh, if you look at Matthew 16, it's the statement where Je uh, Peter makes this confession about Jesus being the Christ, and immediately Jesus says, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. There's no human way that you could even follow me this long that a human being can figure all this out on their own. We are spiritually dead, we're separated from God, and we can't, out of our own common sense and ingenuity, figure out our relationship and, ne and the necessity of it on our own. And so Jesus says, you didn't do this on your own, God the Father had to reveal it to you. In John, six, uh, John chapter six, verse 44, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless he draws them. Now, I don't want to get sidelined by this. Theologically, you would have people that say, well, unless the Spirit draws people, they'll never have any desire to follow Jesus. Um, and I'll say this quickly and then move on because I know some of you would think this way. If you've got an Armenian view of this, that you would call it prevenient grace. God's grace comes, lifts me up above the, the blind and darkness of sin so that I can see the gospel clearly and it gives me the freedom to make a choice whether I would accept the gospel or not. If you're more Calvinistic, maybe reformed, 
the, the idea there is, unless the Spirit of God changes my heart in regeneration, I don't have any ability to make a decision for the gospel, because I can't do it on my own, I'm spiritually dead. Well, I'm not gonna get lost in those weeds this morning, but if I was paralleling these, this is where the Spirit of God has to draw people to the Father in order for anything to happen. The deny self, at least in this text, I would parallel with the idea of repentance and faith. That this idea of denying self comes close to this idea of repentance. You can't deny self unless you make a choice to do something different than where my life is at. That being said, when you take up your cross, the idea of the cross is the whole point of reconciliation. Only Christ's death on the cross is the, is the means by which we get right with God. And I don't believe what Jesus is saying here is that if you do all these things, as it were, then you will get, you'll earn enough points with God that you'll get there. This is a result of an individual who truly understands who Jesus is and has, and, and resolves through repentance and faith to follow him. And then of course, follow me, is that's where the relationship and the responsibility of the Christian life is. So, having that said that, let me get down to where most of you are kind of like, okay, I get that, don't care. <laughs> I don't understand it all and it doesn't matter to me. So let me re reverse engineer this to say, well when Jesus says that you have to deny self and the, the key issue here is you could gain the whole world and lose your soul, what does that look like? Well, here, let me try to suggest to you some things that you see in the scripture that talk about people who are gaining the whole world but sort of miss the point of losing their soul. In Luke 12, 16 through 21, this is the passage where Jesus tells the story of the rich landowner who makes a lot of money, he's got more than he can deal with, he's stacking it up, he's got enough for retirement, and he's going like, what do I do? So he tears down his barns, he builds more up, and he goes, okay, I'm just gonna like, build the reserves like crazy. And then in the text, it f simply says, God says to him, you're a fool, because this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So regardless of whether you caught everything beforehand, here's the issue, a person who doesn't deny self is a person who often is committed to building up all the resources of this world so that they can be financially independent and they don't have to rely on someone. And you're going, wait a minute, isn't that what we're all doing? <laughs> Aren't we gonna get to a point where we, we can't rely on other people to pay us for what we're doing? We've gotta be financially, that's, I don't think, what the issue is here. The issue is, I've spent so much time building up my own resources and my own legacy that this fool hasn't been rich towards God. So one of the ways that we clearly don't deny self is not that we build up lots of riches, but that we are, we are frugal and meager towards God. We're not, we're not generous givers of our money, our resources, our time, our energy. It's not about my life with God. It's I want God to... To, to validate my life and help me be successful. Now I suspect nobody here has that problem, but one of the ways that we clearly demonstrate that we don't need God is we're trying to build our own empires, our own kingdoms, and that becomes more important than spending time with God. Matthew 6.30 is part of the Lord's prayer framework, and Jesus says, I don't want you to be anxious about your food or your clothing or your shelter, because he goes on and says, you know, I provide for the birds. 
The birds, the birds and the bees and the animals, and I provide for them, and they're not working for any of it. I have, they're relying completely on me to do it. But he says, if you take a look at the world around you, the Gentiles passionately and eagerly seek these things all the time. The more, the better. The bigger, the more important you are. And so these are individuals who know how to win and gain everything in the world that they can, and Jesus' instruction to the disciples is he goes, look at the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. Your priority is seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Because that's what successful life looks like from God's perspective, but often not from ours. And so there's individuals who spend their whole life eagerly making sure they're completely self-sufficient. They're not depending on anyone else. They could, they want it, we all want to retire when we're 30. Well, maybe 40. Oh, forget it, someday, you know, when we get like 80. But we've become so ferocious about eagerly seeking after those things that God's more of an afterthought than he is the centerpiece of how I live. Mark chapter three, one through six. One of the clear examples is the Pharisees and the scribes were sort of the the community leaders and the spiritual leaders. And their whole idea of success was that they had power and presence in the community. And so, whatever you'd call it, in our context, it would be climbing the ladder in business. The, the, those be, and the question we'd ask is, well, is it wrong? Well, what, what Jesus is saying is, well, you have to be careful because you can gain the entire world and forfeit your soul. And then we, our response would be, well, yeah, but I trusted Jesus when I was six, so I'm okay. And Jesus would come back to us and say, well, just a minute, if you want to follow me, I've already made a point to say, if you want to come after me, you need to deny self, take up your cross and follow me every day because one of the components in this is that you can say that you want to follow me, but if your pursuit of life is more about building riches and wealth and everything else, you can gain all that, but then it raises question is, okay, are we really comfortable with where our soul is? I would hesitate to sit this, but the thing that makes me nervous is Jesus would say, well, sometimes actions speak louder than words. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 19, God has made it a point through the gospel to humiliate those who are the wise and the brilliant in this life through the foolishness of the gospel. I know I've said it before, but Social media is at times a magnificent tool. I don't, you know, it can be TikTok, Instagram, X, whatever, and, and all the numerous other things that are out there. All the, and you know that the danger sometimes would be, in my thinking, is that there's, we, we sometimes go Googling our answers from the internet rather than from God's word. that we're relying more on them how to raise our kids than understanding the principles of God's word on how to raise our kids. That there's nothing wrong with experts who can teach us about how to handle our finances, but sometimes we just flat out ignore the very plain teachings of what's in the word as the foundation of how we do that. And, and so the, the challenge here is what does it mean for us 
to gain the whole world and possibly risk losing our soul. Now again, we're gonna split this into, we're gonna compartmentalize. Well, just a minute, I've done Jesus, so I may do this really badly, but since I've trusted Jesus, I got nothing to worry about. And Jesus is gonna come back and say, well, hang on, if you wanna come and follow me, have a desire to do it, it means you have to deny self, take up your cross and follow me. So how do you want me to think about that, Brad? I don't know, figure it out. Because it's very easy at one point that we find our lives going, oh, that my favorite hobby, my favorite passion, and the hours that I give to this makes my commitment to Jesus look pretty frugal. I haven't been rich with God in terms of my devotional time, my prayer time, pouring in his word. I've got all kinds of pursuits, I've got all kinds of activities, I've got all kinds of hobbies that I'm pouring tons of times in and I wanna do it because I wanna be successful. And every once in a while I think Jesus wants to tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, and I'll, and I'll give us a benefit. I know you're my child, but like, where are you going here? What, what, are, you, what are you really, are you trying to follow me or are you just trying to use me to help rubber stamp your success in life? Now, I'm gonna put up a list. Since it says to deny himself, I wanna throw up a, ri- a list here to make you think about it for a minute. And this list is just a collage of words. I'm not saying all this belongs in this category, but I want you to think about it for a minute. So here's the concept of denying self. Some of these will be really obvious. Some of them, I hope, kind of go, hmm. Some of the list is this, a self-directed life, a self-fulfilling life, a self-defined life, a self-determined life, a self-conscious life, a self-governed life, a self-centered life, a self-preserving life, a self-reliant life, a self-reproach life, you might go, that sounds weird, a self-satisfied life, a self-seeking life, a self-sufficient life, a self-motivated life, a self-successful life, a self-appointed authority over my life, and I didn't even put all we could there, I could put a self-absorbed life. Now let me ask you this, do, do any of those ring true in terms of things that are more of a motivation in your life than you should be denying? Now, I say that because I want you to think, what do you think it means for you to deny self in this journey of following Christ? Now some of these might be obvious. Self-directed life, I think we get that. Jesus, the whole idea of come after me means to stand behind Jesus and follow. Galatians chapter five tells us that we're to keep in step with the spirit, which literally means he leads, I follow. For some of us, that concept is really hard because we've grown up in a culture that says nobody tells me what to do, I decide what's good for me. And and so as as we sort of struggle through the journey, the, the question is what is it that we're really following? Self-reliant life, a self-sufficient life. Sometimes we come to the end of our rope and we understand these things more vividly when I'm in a crisis and I can't figure out what to do and then we cry out to God like the atheist running away from the bear. We go, God, help me. And he's kind of like, like, why are you asking now? Like, what happened to the last five years? 
Like, why haven't you been asking for my help all the way along rather than just in those moments of crisis where you've suddenly come to the point where I can't handle all of this? I, I think I've shared with you on different occasions that one of the philosophies of our approach is, well, I really want to do this. I'm going to do it. And if God doesn't want me to do it, he's going to have to stop me. Now, I'd do a show of hands of, you know, has anybody ever done that? Just for the sake that my hand's not the only one up here, I'm tempted to do it, but I don't want my hand to be the only one up that's ever done that, so I'm not going to be embarrassing myself by saying, I'm the only one that's ever done that. But we've, we've, we've often done that in practice, where, I don't know if God wants me to do it, but I'm going to go for it, and if God doesn't want me to do it, then he's just going to have to get in the way. And I'm, my question is always like, well, why are you making decisions that you don't really have the mind of Christ on? That, by in, that intuitively tells me you're making decisions and you really don't know what God wants you to do, so I'm going to make it anyway, which sounds a little more self-directed than following his lead. When we deny self, let me throw this on the other side of the coin to say here's what I think what Jesus is saying in so many ways is that it's about a surrendered life to Christ. And if I was going to put more tangible things to it, I would say, well, it's where I exchange my beliefs for Christ defining what I should believe. Now, to some degree, we have to come to that reality just to accept Christ as our Savior, but it also continues for the rest of my life. How do I follow Jesus all the way through my life and journey, whether it's through high school or whether it's through college, which uh, I used to do this to my high school kids when I was doing youth ministry back in Portland. I get the seniors and I say, what are you doing? And like all of them said, oh, we're going to college. I said, cool. How'd you decide you're going to college? <laughs> you know, the answer's gonna be, my parents said that's what I'm gonna do. And then I would do my normal thing. And I said, well, okay, I know what your parents want you to do. Is that, are you sure that's what God wants you to do? And it wasn't fair. They're high school students because it's like, what are you going to do? But there's lots of people who make decisions that at times are kind of like, well, this is just, and there's wisdom in listening to the people around us. That, that's not the issue, but often we can catch ourselves making a lot of decisions in life and we really don't understand at all the mind of Christ. I will exchange my values for Christ's values. Now, if you don't think that's an issue, you're not paying attention to the culture that we're living in. They're not only, they're, a lot of the values in our culture are not only miles from what we would traditionally grow up, but they're, I mean, actually hostile to the values that I would see in terms of the scripture. And the danger is, is well, okay, I don't want to become an enemy of the culture, but I don't want to be different. So like, how do I figure out what my values are gonna be? Well, hey, if you really wanna discover a struggle in your life, try to figure out what your values are. I will exchange my priorities for Christ's priorities. I mean, 
We can't just assume, I, I know, and I, I don't want to insult anybody, we have to assume that just because I've decided this is what I'm doing in my life, that all my priorities line up exactly with Jesus. Unless I've given a lot of prayer to it in terms of what I'm doing or whatever, it's easy to say, well, this is just stuff I have to do because I have to do it. But we need to make sure that our priorities line up with Christ's priorities. Now, I realize there's a huge ambiguity in this and what this looks like. Do I take this job? Do I go to this school? Do I have this relationship? And a lot depends on what priorities, what does the scripture say why I should be involved in this relationship, that I should go here? I think the great debate for many people is, wow, I just want to work for a Christian organization because all, we all share the same values. And that makes sense. But I could make the argument that fitting into a non-Christian organization is a value that you could have because I want to be missional and there's people there that don't know Jesus. So depending on what value you want to choose will determine exactly how you make some of those decisions. I exchange my behaviors for Christ's behaviors. I exchange my habits for his and I want my character to reflect Christ. So there's lots to gain in the world. You certainly don't have to be a Christian. In fact, non-Christians sometimes are way better about gaining all the stuff in the world than we are. But sometimes the lure of gaining all this stuff is driven by our need to provide for our families and all these kinds of things. Clearly nothing wrong with having jobs and even having money. But the issue becomes, how do I deny self in this process of following Jesus? At the end of this, let me just remind you of what Jesus says the consequence is of not denying self. And it comes from that statement, for what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now again, if you're like me, the tension goes, okay, but if I've already trusted Jesus, this isn't an issue in terms of ultimately what happens, so don't I just use my own common sense to just do what I have to do to live in the culture that I'm doing? Well, the answer is yes, but also the answer is no. Because look what Jesus says. You can gain the whole world, but the thing that you forfeit at the end of it is your soul. The idea of forfeiting something means to suffer the loss of something which has you have previously possessed. With the implication that the loss involves considerable hardship or suffering. Now, most of us have gone through life where we've ignored the wisdom of God, we've made choices, and I know I shouldn't have done that. And it, gets, it puts us down a trajectory where I've got a lot of damage in my life, I create a lot of collateral damage, and I've got a lot of reconciliation and repair to do, and so I get it. So there is some very practical, down-to-earth realities about how I'm making my choices how I develop my relationships and what it does, but Jesus, again, uh, comes back to the bigger picture. And so let me, let me mention some of the practical implications. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for the, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, and then you cannot serve God and mammon. It's really annoying how this money thing keeps showing up, isn't it? Just really annoying. The other passage 
is even a little bit more personal, Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, doesn't use the word deny, use the word hate. And we're not going to get lost in those weeds, but Jesus doesn't just say you're just going to be a bad disciple. It's like you can't be a disciple of me if these things are more important than me. Really? (laughs) God doesn't want volunteers. He wants full-time followers of Jesus. He doesn't want us to volunteer our our time when it simply happens to be convenient. He wants full-time people that every single day will stand up in the morning and say, I want to follow Jesus, so I'm going to deny self, take up my cross, and I'm going to follow him. As you began to think about this, I want to just remind you of one person in the New Testament that I think had this pretty figured out. And of course, the person I'm referring to is Paul. So I want to finish by reading a text out of Philippians that helps sort of galvanize at least the mindset of somebody who I believe kind of got this idea of what it means to deny self. They're not leaving because they're upset with what I said. They're coming up here to lead worship in a few minutes. I always give them a bad time. I'm kind of like, I'm getting to my best point. You guys always leave. Like, what's that? (laughs) Philippians 3, Paul says, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh. That's a great way to talk about the issue that Jesus was talking about. I'm confident in my training. I'm confident in my skills. I'm confident in my abilities. I'm confident in my training. If anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Yeah, you want to get into this brag fest? I can, I can jump in there, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I kept that thing rigorously. But then he makes this interesting comment where he basically says, I don't care what my resume is, Look, uh, here's my attitude. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. There's a person who understands what it means to deny self. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'm kind of like, man, I want to grow up to be like Paul. I I need that kind of heart because I want to say exactly the same thing. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, I accepted Jesus back on the road, I'm good. I want you to notice how much it transforms the way he lives. 
I'm not resting on my achievements, my accomplishments, all these things, that's not what motivates and drives me anymore. My whole life is I count all that stuff as rubbish. It's all lost because of the surpassing value of Christ. And I'm full on to embrace him and learn about him and examine my life according to his character and his word and his wisdom, his values and his priorities. I'm constantly reshaping my life so that it becomes, it looks like Jesus. You know the great danger for all of us? <laughs> I've heard this before. I know this stuff. And I think Jesus would tap us on the shoulder once in a while because, you know, I'm not quite as interested in how much you think you know and what you can brag about. I'm interested in how following me is changing the way you live. Because I got all kinds of people who can quote scripture to the cows come home. I got individuals who've memorized verses and they are teachers and they can do all these things. What I really want to know from you is how is it that knowing all this stuff motivates you to see the surpassing value of following me in such a way that you're willing to deny self? You can't, all this stuff is rubbish because you are so passionately in love with me that I'm the centerpiece of your life, I'm the motivation of your desires, I'm the heartbeat of your passions. You're pursuing me every single day you get up and say, you know what, Jesus, you're worth more than anything else that I can accomplish today. I'm gonna deny self. And as we talk about next week, I'm gonna take up my cross and I'm full on for Jesus. Now I understand the problem that that's all good theology, but what does it look like in my life? Well, I can go back to the self statements and you can figure out, I, I, I hope you looked at it enough where you're kind of going like, oh, you know, that one kind of sort of resembles me a little bit. And I don't really care whether they all do or not. It, you only need one. I mean, that'll take the next six months. So that's the project. Find one self-centered thing that you do and then learn how to deny Jesus over the next six months. Or well, that was a good statement. <laughs> Maybe that was a divine verbal prophetic saying. I don't know. Let, let's try to re-engineer that one. <laughs> Maybe that's the way we do it. I don't know. <laughs> but how do you deny self so that you can follow Jesus? Because there's one area of my life that, yeah, this is the way I'm going to do it, and I don't care what my wife says. I don't care what my kids say. I don't care what my people in our small group say. This is the way I'm going to do it. And if Jesus himself showed up here, you might have a debate. There was Craig Evans who wrote this. The good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The time of salvation is now. Jesus' contrasting image of saving or losing, losing one's life underscores the point that humanity's salvation is bound up with the good news of the gospel. There is no salvation apart from it, and one's response to it cannot consist of half measures. One either embraces the gospel and lives according to its demands, even if it costs one's life, or one avoids it, its apparent dangers, thinking that one will save one's life by living apart from it and perishes. I want to appeal to you that if you've never come to the reality 
of wanting to follow Jesus or you want to do it on a superficial basis. Well, I'll follow his teachings or I, he inspires me like Martin Luther King because I like some of the things he did for the poor and the disenfranchised. It's not what Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to be an inspiration and a model for you to imitate some of the things. He wants to save your life through the message of the gospel because it's the only way to be right with God. You might finish and look at some of these and go, well, it seems a little steep. That's a little harsh to be like having those kinds of conditions. Well, let me just remind you that the cost on the other side of the coin is far steeper. Because these aren't just life and death issues, they're eternal issues. And if you've never come to the reality in your own life to surrender to God through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I invite you to do it today. If you're not sure, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders. Talk to someone on staff. But I want to implore you that Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you need to deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Father, you know, we live in a life where the very nature of all that we do is built upon in a sense, our resume. Because we're always trying to demonstrate people our competence and our professionalism and our worthiness to be involved in a job or in a relationship. And in a sense, you've put down the conditions in front of your disciples and the people. And ultimately, in the gospel, which you wove Jesus wove skillfully into this conversation. That there's more at stake in just trying to improve our life or find a self-help tool. We're dealing with eternal issues. And Christ is the only answer to it. And Father, I just ask that you will touch our hearts and help us to understand the conviction of your spirit upon our life in such a way that not just helps us understand the fallibility and the weakness of possibly living a self-directed life, but the hope and the promise of coming behind Jesus and trusting him to be our savior. And then living in such a way that reflects this claim that we know and follow Jesus. And for this we do pray in Christ's name, amen.